This is a CNA podcast. There are some moments in history that seem to make time stand still. For some, that day was October 12, 2002. We begin this bulletin with a horrifying blast on the Indonesian resort island of Bali. At least 182 people were killed in the terror attack, the worst ever in Indonesia. That death toll eventually rose to 202. Many of those who died were from Australia and Indonesia. Hundreds were also injured. A massive car bomb ripped through two bars and triggered an intense fire in the Kuta Beach tourist district. 20 years on, the memories are still fresh for survivors. Hello and welcome to CNA Correspondent. I'm your host, Teresa Tang. This is the podcast where our network of correspondents shine a light on stories from wherever they are in the world, bringing you behind and beyond the headlines. On today's edition, we speak to our Indonesia correspondent, Saifulbari Ismail. He takes us to Bali as we revisit a day that changed the country forever. The Bali Bombing Memorial is in the heart of Kutu's main tourist area. The memorial stands near the former sites of the Paddy's Pub and Sorry Club, which were destroyed in the bombings. Saiful joins me now. Saiful, you weren't our Indonesia correspondent yet when the blasts happened. But do you remember where you were when you heard the news? What was your reaction? Well, Teresa, I was probably in bed uh, during the blast because it happened at around 11 p.m. I think many people woke up the next morning in shock and disbelief when they heard news about that deadly attack. That was also my reaction, horrified and frightened actually because it happened so close to home in Singapore. I have a few friends in Bali at that time and one of the things I did was to try and call them up and check if they were okay. Fortunately, they were all right, but shaken definitely by the terrible incident. Yeah, I was in high school at the time and it didn't really impact me then. But when I visited Bali subsequently, I went to the memorial. It's so hard to miss. And it's such a huge part of Bali's history now that locals don't want to forget. So Saiful, as a correspondent, you recently walked that stretch of road in Kuta to talk to people. What are the sentiments today? Is that incident still on people's minds? Yeah, definitely. People still talk about it. It's hard for people not to talk about it, especially when they walk past the memorial, which is well-maintained and illuminated at night. At the memorial, there is a large marble plaque which bears the names and nationalities of those killed in the attack. It is very poignant to see tourists take a few minutes off their holiday making and to look at the names of those who died from more than 20 countries and reflect on what actually happened right where they are. It's certainly a grim reminder of the devastation that left hundreds dead and injured. This was such a powerful tragedy because of the people who were killed and injured, not just foreigners, Indonesians as well. And you spoke with some survivors who say these past 20 years haven't erased their scars. What did they tell you? Well, Teresa, they told me many things. I spoke with a couple of survivors for the CNA correspondent episode. The fact that these survivors were able to share their stories, share their experiences, actually showed a lot about how they've been able to deal with what happened to them 20 years ago. One of the survivors I spoke with is 48-year-old Teolina Ferawati Marpaung. Now, the blast from the bombs ruptured the lens of her left eye and a shard of debris actually entered her right eye. Oh, wow. She now has permanent eye injuries. Teolina said she does not 
seek revenge from the perpetrators and she has forgiven them for their actions. However, when speaking with her, there are still things which she finds hard to accept. Teolina was actually shocked to find out that one of the perpetrators of the Bali bombing, Omar Patik, is expected to be released from prison soon. Now, Omar is one of the bomb maker and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison in 2012. However, Omar's sentence has been shortened due to remissions he received over the years. Teolina said Omar should serve his full sentence and does not deserve the remissions. She said that Omar's 20 years prison sentence is nothing as compared to her injuries which made her impaired for life. Now, another survivor I spoke with is Husnul Hotima. She was buying food on that fateful night near the nightclubs. The impact of the blast left her with 70% burns and severed her left toe. Her misfortune didn't end there. Husnul's permanent injuries adversely affected her life economically. She could not find a proper job and was laden with debts. Husnul's husband hated the perpetrators of the Bali bombing so much that he even said that if the actors did not get the death sentence, he will get himself in jail and kill the perpetrators himself. Life began to improve for Husnul when she, together with more than 200 other victims of terror attacks in Indonesia, received compensation from the state in 2020, nearly 20 years after the Bali bombings. But it had been a long, difficult and burdensome journey for Husnul, who tried to commit suicide three times. There were times when I got fed up. The treatments cost a lot of money, and I tried to end my life by drinking pesticide. But if I die, who is going to take care of my child? So I don't want to do that again. Saiful, we now know the attack was committed by a regional terrorist organization, Jema Islamia, who have links to the Al-Qaeda militant group. A number of those members received death sentences and they were actually executed by firing squad. But we know some are alive and remorseful. Can you tell us about these men? Well, Theresa, three members of the Jema Islamia, who were the main actors of the Bali bombings, received death sentences. Amrozi, Imam Samudra and Muklas were executed for their roles in the bombings. Earlier, I mentioned Umar Patek, who had a hand in making the bombs used in the attack. Now, in August, news broke that Omar will be released from prison. He became eligible for parole after a series of remissions for good behaviour. Now, news of Umar's impending parole has sparked concern in Australia, with PM Anthony Albanese saying he's released would have a devastating impact on the families of victims. Omar had expressed regret for his role in the attack during his trial in 2012. His lawyers said that Omar was only following orders when he assembled the bombs and had neither planned nor executed the attack. Indonesian authorities have since highlighted Omar as an example of the country's de-radicalization efforts. The exact date of Umar's release remains unclear. Even though Umar is already eligible for parole, it's unlikely that he will be released at a time so close to the 20-year anniversary of the Bali bombings. Observers said it will be insensitive for the Indonesian government to do so during this period. Another perpetrator of the Bali bombings, who is also still in prison, is Ali Imran. He's the youngest of three brothers involved in the attack. His two older brothers, I mentioned earlier, Amrozi and Muklas, have already been executed. 
Ali Imran is currently serving a life imprisonment for his role. He was actually at the heart of the plot. He told the police immediately after being arrested that he was the one who had chosen the sites for the attack. He was looking for a target where there were many foreigners. Ali Imran also helped build the main bomb that was used in a van outside Sari Club and that he was the one who trained the two suicide bombers involved in the attack and in the end dropped them off only a few meters from the Sari Club and Paddy's pub. Now Ali Imran escaped the firing squad because of the assistance he gave to investigators. He spelled out the exact nature of the plot. He put names to almost every role in the Bali cell and it was his evidence, including evidence against his brothers, that has helped convict those other key defendants. Secondly, Ali Imran showed remorse in court. On a number of occasions, he cried in court, in particular once when an Indonesian woman described the loss of her husband in the Bali bombing. He broke down and pleaded for her forgiveness. Now, beyond that, he has said that he's made statements to his students from East Java that they shouldn't follow his example. He also told his family that his example was wrong. Now, observers said Ali Imran is being used by authorities as part of de-radicalization efforts, even though Ali Imran is serving life imprisonment, he's sometimes given permission to participate in public forums in Indonesia. I seek forgiveness from the victims, their families, and those who suffered losses from the acts of terrorism, especially the Bali bombing, wherever they are and from whatever religion. I'm thankful that I'm an actor who is brave to admit I'm wrong and to seek forgiveness forever. Stay with us. Up next on CNA Correspondent, more with our Indonesia correspondent. We take a look at the terrorist group JI and why authorities vow a repeat of the deadly Bali bombings will never happen again. Hi, I'm Stephen Chia, and I host the new season of our podcast, Heart of the Matter. Join me in getting right to the heart of the headlines as we speak with experts and newsmakers to delve deep into the most talked about news developments. Look out for our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to CNA Correspondent. Saiful, authorities at the time of the Bali bombings 20 years ago, they cited weak intelligence and poor security. Do you think this attack could have been prevented? What has changed since then? Well, the Bali bombings could probably be prevented if there were better intelligence within Indonesia, as well as better intelligence sharing between countries. The seeds of the October 2002 Bali bombing plot were probably sown in a hotel room in southern Thailand 10 months earlier at a meeting of Jemaah Islamia's Southeast Asian operatives. The order was made to hit soft targets such as nightclubs and bars. Having said that, violent extremism is not a new phenomenon in Indonesia. There were already attacks even before the Bali bombings. Ali Imran said one small positive thing from the Bali bombings was that the attack really exposed the Jemaah Islamia network. The Bali bombings were a rude wake-up call for security forces not only in Indonesia but across the region. After the Bali bombings, 
A unit that specializes in anti-terror was created under the Indonesian National Police Command. The unit called Densus 88 became operational in 2003. That unit has worked with considerable success, disrupting the activities of Jemaah Islamia. Many of JI's top operatives have been arrested or killed. In addition to Densus 88, Indonesian government established the National Counterterrorism Agency or BNPT in 2010. It is a non-ministerial government department that works on formulating policies, strategies and programs on terrorism prevention. And one of those programs is on de-radicalization of convicted terrorists. You sat down with a former JI member who was recently released from prison. Why did he join in the first place and what made him eventually decide to leave? Yes, I spoke with a former senior member of Jemaah Islamia. His name is Joko Priyono, also known as Carso. His code name during his time with JI was Bravo. Joko said he began to understand Islam when he was a teenager in school where he joined groups to discuss more about the religion. This went on until university and he only found out much later that the religious groups that he had been attending was from Jemaah Islamia. Joko later joined Neo-JI group or the New JI after the old one was declared an illegal organization in 2008. Now, Joko recruited trainees for the network and was in charge of operating 12 training centers around Central Java between 2012 and 2018. These centers were used to teach members about the art of self-defense, how to use weapons, how to make bombs. Each batch of trainees spent about one year at the center before being sent to Syria to join groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Joko was arrested in 2019 and sentenced to four years in jail for running those training sites. There could be many reasons why Joko decided to change his ways. Prison time can actually make people reflect on many things. Joko is already 49 years old and he has a wife and children. What is also interesting to note is that police and prosecutors believe that members of the Neo-JI had wished to proclaim an Islamic state where the people accept Islam as the national principle and to expand the territory worldwide. Fascinating to hear the perspective from someone who's been inside. Saifal, Indonesia's National Counterterrorism Agency says there are about 15,000 people who are part of terrorist groups in the country. 15,000, that is a lot of people. What challenges do they face today? And frankly, do you feel safe in Indonesia? Um, yes, I feel safe in Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Teresa, the National Counterterrorism Agency or BNPT said it is monitoring these 15,000 people. Now, it is indeed not a small number, as you mentioned, for any security agency to keep a watchful eye on. But BNPT said the number used to be higher. Authorities continue to work with different segments of society on counterterrorism. Now, the scourge of terrorism may be impossible to eradicate totally, but there must be continuous efforts to minimize it as much as possible. BNPT said that in 2019, the radicalism potential index in Indonesia was 38.4, and this has gone down by 12.2 last year. Now, the index is a measure of the threat of radicalism in the country. The high-profile 2002 Bali bombings forced the Indonesian government to take urgent counterterrorism measures. The anti-terrorism bill was signed into law by then, President Megawati Sukarno Putri six days after the incident. And in, in 2018, the law was improved, allowing authorities to make preemptive arrests 
and detain terror suspects longer. But this may not be enough. The resulting crackdown against JI in Indonesia has forced the group into a period of decline and a shift away from violent extremism. Authorities noted that Jama Islamia now has changed its strategy. Before, it used to carry out attacks. Now, its strategy is through missionary endeavor, infiltrating into various organizations. JI now runs legitimate organizations, legitimate businesses. The group has gone mainstream. And this is the future challenge for authorities. JI terrorism experts say JI now even embrace mainstream politics. They may be using politics as a platform to push their own agenda. Indonesia has also seen a rise in conservatism, unlike Malaysia or Singapore, which have the Internal Security Act. Indonesia still does not have such laws. BNPT said Indonesia needs to legally prevent radical ideologies. For example, authorities cannot take actions against groups who want to promote the caliphate as part of efforts to establish their own version of a religious state. And now we know October 12th, every year authorities are going to have that day to reflect on what they've achieved and essentially do a stock take. So uh, we know that radicalism and keeping these terrorist networks at bay will always be a priority. Saiful, thank you very much for that. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks for having me. The TV version of CNA Correspondent airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. You can also catch up with them whenever you like on cna.asia. Follow this podcast version that takes you behind the scenes with our correspondents so you'll know when a new episode is out. Our podcast team is made up of Daniel Lee, Crispina Robert, Clara Ong, and me, your host, Teresa Tang. Thank you for listening. <laughs>